How can you best describe your personal connection with Kinder Scout? So I think I know it from lots of different experiences and I've seen it in lots of different lights and climates and weathers um, and different areas. I've come, it, come from it from different locations, from Edale um, and from sort of like the north, from um, Snape Pass as well. I've seen it in winter. I've seen it when it's sort of three, four foot sort of deep snow drifts at the top. I've seen it in ice, um, which makes it a bit unpleasant for walking in when it's being gale force winds, um, as well as those really nice sort of sunny summer days out when you're just taking a backpack and just out for a couple of hours. I guess it's a bit like a person. You get to see it from all different sides. So you really get to see what it is like in it from its bad side, from its good side. And I think that's what comes, brings me back all the time. Um, it's different every time I come up. Uh, you never know what to expect. Even today, I was expecting it to be pretty cloudy and actually it's beautiful. Um, yeah, you never know what you expect. How do you feel when you spend time here? I always smile when I come up here, even driving. When I passed the, when I came through Hope this morning and I saw the, the blue sky and sort of like the hills and stuff, uh, I had put a smile on my face. As I say, it's different. You've got the little lambs in the field at the minute. I think because it's, um, it does feel wild. It's the wildest bit of the Peak District, I think, for me. Just because as soon as you take, turn, turn off that valley in, in Hope, uh, you know, that little windy road for 10, 15 minutes. It's a bit less accessible than anywhere else in the Peak District. It's a bit quieter. Um, so, yeah, and I think that's why I like it. I like to be away, feeling that wildness, and it feels a bit more of an adventure, I think. It feels really quiet today, doesn't it? It's beautiful. All you can say, you can hear, like, little birds in the background, and that's it, a little breeze. It's what more could you want. I love it. <laughs> and I love it how you can come out from the village which can be really busy yeah and then within yeah, a few yeah. minutes you can just be totally feel totally away from exactly it all. I say especially like for back for my travels in today sort of like it was through Sheffield when it was like the school run through Sheffield and then even sort of as you say even through Edale and, and sort of um in the village itself after the, the mad rush of the school run everybody going to work walking the dogs um 10-15 minutes up here and it, it's quiet so it's it's such a retreat um you don't get that many you don't get that very often, I don't think. Um, you always hear a road, I think. There's a lot of places in the UK that you always hear a road in the background. Um, and to be able to get away somewhere where you don't hear a road, I think is magical, because then you do hear nature. You hear the, the wind through the trees, you hear the birds, you hear the insects, and I think that's really magical. When did you first come here, and what was that experience like? So I got introduced here about probably about 15 16 years ago so I'm not local I, sort of, I grew up in the northeast in Darlington um, and then I went to uni and after uni I moved into with uh, in with my boyfriend who lived in workshop at the time and um, yeah so he introduced me to uh, the delights of the Peak District on our sort of like day day walks in the in the summertime um, and I think the first time we came here we must have started somewhere I think we must have parked in Edale and walked up one of the cloughs and came down Jacob's Ladder or somewhere like that, I think it was. And I'd, I'd done a geology degree, so obviously was, I was fascinated with all the rocks. I was probably boring him to death with all the, the story of it all. But I remember thinking, yeah, this is really cool. I love this place. This is, we'll have to come back here. This is great for, for walking and stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> how, was your, how has your appreciation and passion for the outdoors developed over time? I think it's grown organically over time. Um, I was never an outdoorsy kid. I was very academic. I was, I would, on a sunny day, I'd be out. I'd be sort of being inside, colouring in. Yeah, helping mum with housework and stuff like that. I would never be outside. Um, we did go on like family trips to the Dales and things like that. But um, yeah, I would never be called me outdoorsy when I was younger. Um, I think doing geology as a degree, we did field trips, so that forces you to, you buy your first set of walking boots and you, you really naff pair of um, yeah, your, your waterproofs and, uh, and stuff like that. 
um, and you get forced outside and you're with your mates so actually this is quite good like you go on your field trips and it's yeah it's, it's good fun um, so that's like your first experience of, be, of being outdoors and you learn to m- sort of map read as well a little bit when, you, when you're out in the field and then sort of um, a few years later I sort of got into running uh, and I joined a run club uh, about five, uh, about 15, 16 years ago and did my first fell race um, and again it just sort of gets you a little bit di- doing something different rather than like doing like little runs on your doorstep it's like oh let's let's go into the pizza street to do a fell run and um, it's that curiosity I think isn't it you want to learn about you want to know where things are what where where paths go um, I also got into cycling as well so my other half was um, at the time was a um, really into cycling so we'd be off all around sort of Yorkshire and Derbyshire and Nottinghamshire every weekend on our bikes with the club um, and we'd go off to we've had a couple of trips into uh, to France as well so again that's that planning and route planning and navigation and it's just that like, where does this place go where does that place go and we were camping at the time so you, you just get used to being outdoors all the time and, it, and before you know it you enjoy being outdoors more than you be like being inside and then further down the line we've now got into climbing um so we're actually with my favorite bit we're actually touching the rock we've been with the rock and it's sort of we're climbing on the rock and i think it's fantastic we've been to so many different parts of the uk and parts of abroad as well it's it, it's it's continuous learning like how different landscapes form it's just like that curiosity of an appreciation actually we, we, we live so busy lives now or we make ourselves have busy lives um it's nice to have that switch off to come here in the outdoors and just listen and have that peace and quiet um i think it's even more important for people who don't have a garden especially during like the lockdowns as i was lucky enough to have a have a garden and, and that was my time i could go outdoors that was my outdoors. I loved it. I, w- I was out there all the time when I could. People didn't have, a, have their own space, outdoor space. Then, yeah, the, you need to be outdoors. I think there's there's something in our biology that we should we we're drawn to it. I think. I think it's so important for bits, for people to spend time outdoors. Um, and the more time, the better. And it makes you harder. I think it does make you appreciate things. Um, and time to switch off as well. It gives you time to think, yeah. Where do you think is a good place for people to start if they haven't grown up being outdoors a lot, you know, in the younger years? People who are maybe listening to this or people who see others going out on these amazing walks, how do you think people can just make a start? You don't have to go very far to start being out, even your local park. Um, so where I'm living now in, in Doncaster we've got a few nice local parks that's being outdoors I'm thinking it, it doesn't have to be big mountains it doesn't have to be these Instagrammable pictures of all these amazing places and posing all these amazing um, landscapes and stuff I'm thinking being outdoors can just be if you haven't got a garden go to your local park your local green space if it's a local river being next to the river I, I love the sound of, of, of running water um, getting your feet wet experiencing it and then if you want to take it further take a short drive to um, on the edge of the Petra Street or somewhere that's maybe got a um, a cafe or, or a um, like Longshore Longshore is a great sort of introduction to people who don't know how to map read or anything like that you can see where you're going you're not too far from the from the cafe there's an ice cream van it's great for kids there's loos on site as well so it's sort of it's that next step and again it's sort of like once you feel comfortable with that well then you can go a little bit further you could go to North Burbage for a little circuit around there and then you could go a little bit further and it's just sort of those those step-by-step um yeah, those step-by-step journeys that you make, that what you feel comfortable with. You don't have to be, take one big leap to say, right, I'm going to sort of climb Ben Nevis now. Just do your outdoorsy bit, what feels good for you. And I say, if if just going to your local park's good enough for you, that is that is fine. I'm, that's great for think. So is that the reason that you decided to do your Hill and Moreland leader qualification? I think I wanted to do... I wanted to be outdoors more. Um... 
So I, I have a, a nine to five office job, nine five days a week at the time, and um, which I loved, I, I really enjoyed, but I wanted to be outdoors more. And uh, my work gave me a great opportunity to change my shift so I could do four days a week during the sort of summer months. And I wanted to take people out and show them the outdoors and how what a magical place is and how wonderful it is. And I thought I could teach them navigation. I could just I could just take them out for a walk and tell them all about the flowers and animals and stuff that you see and it's there's so much you can just share with people out here so I just wanted to share my passion with other people I think and when I first did the Helen Morland leader I wasn't quite sure what shape it would become but I did know that at some point I wanted to form my own company um, and yeah share it with other people that my passion for the outdoors. And did you already have quite a good knowledge of map and compass skills before you started? Yeah, so um, we sort of learnt very basic navigation when we were doing our geology degree. And as I say, it was just by osmosis. You sort of, as you start your journey, when you're coming out for day walks and stuff, you, you start picking up a map and then you want to go a little bit further. You think, oh, actually, I, want to, I should really know, know how to navigate. Um, and you want to go on longer walks you're like okay maybe I should learn to navigate a little bit more and again I think it's just that I love learning new skills um so you really hone in on it so yeah I think with the Hill and Morland leader um I did I probably knew how to navigate quite well anyway but it it just reinforced that and just like some of the techniques and the phrasing phrases and stuff that there was that was used but yeah, I just I just loved learning it again. It was really good fun. It's funny that you mentioned the phrases because I remember when I used to hear them from uh-huh. other leaders, and I'd be thinking, "What on earth does that mean?" Yeah, exactly. And then before you know it, you find yourself using them. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And even like, like landscape phrases, like spurs and things like that. And you're like, "Oh gosh, I haven't heard that from like from my geography days." It's like, "What's that again?" Um, yeah, it's, like, it's it's all a learning process. <laughs> Where did your interest in geology begin? So, um, dinosaurs, everybody, all kids love dinosaurs. <laughs> I don't know any kids that don't love dinosaurs. And um, so I grew up in the 90s. Jurassic Park came out, which was absolutely awesome. Um, and I think most people sort of, they they don't, they stop liking it. I don't know, they grow up, <laughs> I guess. And um, I didn't, I still love dinosaurs. Like, this is great. And then you sort of, I always had an interest in science and biology and how the world work and natural world uh, and all like the documentaries that, that were out then. Um, and then you start thinking about, oh, okay, what degree do I do? So, well, I like geography and I like geology. So I went to do that at Liverpool. Um, so then you think, well, I've got to get a career out of this now. What do I do? If I, if I, if I like geology, what am I going to do? Um, and it's sort of, you either stick with academia or at the time it was you go into the oil and gas industry, um, which is what I did. So I went to do a petroleum geoscience degree, masters at Manchester, um, and became a petroleum geologist, um, which was great. I, I loved it. So that's sort of how love of rocks came about, as it were. But I think when people say geology, they always like, yeah, that, that's about rocks. But it's it's so much. It's more than that. It's sort of you got to think when when you sort of these rocks have all got to be ha- around us here. You've got to think, well, how were they deposited? What environment were they deposited in? It certainly wasn't like where we are sitting now around here now. Was it hot? Was it cold? Was it a desert? Was it uh, were there lots of rivers? Was it swamps? Uh, was there lots of vegetation? Was it tr- rainforests? You got all these questions that that you want to ask, and all those things help us tell a story about how these rocks were formed and when they were deposited so it's a it's a science of very many different strands um and that's what i love about and it's all about say that storytelling how are these rocks deposited what's the story behind them how are they why are they there where they are where we see them now um that's what i like about it so can you please share a bit of that story now maybe thinking about and talking about where we're sat now yes which is below ringing roger yeah so we've got a great view and i guess like where do you start with geology it's sort of we've got two different sort of phases as it were you've got 
the geology, which is the rocks, but the landscape that we see around us is the geography, which is the last, I don't know, since glacial times, really. Um, so with the geology, um, we can see all the way up into sort of Castleton and sort of in, into um, the Hope Valley. It, it all started sort of 350, 340 million years ago in the time period called the Carboniferous. And at the time, this whole area was just south of the equator. And if you imagine we're on a warm tropical sea, it's all very pleasant. We've got sort of like coral reefs growing. And I often think, um, think about sort of Finding Nemo, the film, where they've got the coral reef and then they've got the big drop off. So we've got like lots of those big drop offs. We've got these troughs. So we've got bits of deeper sea and we've got raised areas which is slightly higher where you've got your coral reefs and then the back of your reefs where you've got it sort of like all the waves um crashing and things like that so all of this area around here was all this like shallow seas with these troughs in between or these big drop-offs like in finding nemo um so it was all very pleasant so this is in this in the carboniferous way to the north so the north bit of Scotland was attached to Scandinavia. That wasn't even part of the rest of England and, and southern Scotland. That was actually making its way towards the rest um, of England. And when you get your plate tectonics colliding, you get mountains forming, you get this big erogeny, you get mountain building processes. And the mountains that were formed in Scotland and across Scandinavia were huge. They were Himalayan in scale. So they were these massive, massive mountains um, that were colliding to the north. So as we know, um, with modern day analogies, when you get mountains, they always get eroded. So these mountains were starting to erode and then you get rivers that sort of transport that sediment. And uh, we had vast, vast rivers, um, Amazon sort of size rivers that were taking all this sediment from Scotland and depositing it all the way from all the way from northern England all the way to here. So we get sandstones and gritstones uh, in Northumberland, in North Yorkshire and South Yorkshire and, and here as well. And yeah, so we have these these river deposits. So we've gone from a limestone situation here um, where we sat and then the rivers start coming in and they, they have deltas and those deltas start building up sediment and the deltas build up and build up and all of a sudden they collapse um, with the sediment load so the sediments start tumbling down onto this slope and they start filling up these deep troughs that we had and they start, they fill up and fill up and fill up and those sort of those deposits that's what we see in Mamtor so you get to see the different layers between your shales which is like your uh, your deep ocean sediments and your sandstones and these sandstones are called turbidites um, you get alternating layers and these are like these offshore delta deposits so that's just over the next valley. So in this bit, we'll get more of a, a delta environment. So your sands are going to be a bit coarser, which is exactly what you see here. So you've got the, the big um, quartz grains here. The quite coarse. So we're actually on the delta top. So we've got delta top environments. So we've also got swamps as well either side. Uh, and you don't have to go too far before you get to the coal measures either, which is sort of further to the east. Um, and we get coal measures, which you get from your swamp environments. So yeah, so all these, all these grit stones, grit stones that we see here, this, these sediments came all the way from the mountains in Scotland and Scandinavia. Yeah, back in the Carboniferous, which I found amazing. Um, so yeah, so that's how they were formed. What obviously a lot of things have happened since then. It was 340 million years. A lot of it was eroded. The Peak District itself. Um, due to tectonic processes there was a lot of compression and it sort of it domed the whole peak domed and it got eroded so when you have a dome in that middle bit of the uh, of the dome got eroded and that's when you get the edges so Stanage edge, Kerbar edge, Frogger edge um, those all sort of like sticking out that prominent edge that's sort of like from that erosion from that dome shape um, and that's when you get the exposure of uh, sort of the limestones that you see in Castleton um, and say and the edges that we see and also around here 
and then yeah the rest of the sort of britain was exposed uh we've got no rocks so we've got no rec no rock record so we can't really say what was happening because we've got no evidence um but we, yeah so there wasn't much in terms of deposition and erosion since then really we can then fast track to i'll say present day it's not really present day so to the glaciations so the last sort of like 100,000 years to 10,000 years we had um britain was covered in glacials in the last ice age once that all retreated it sort of re it, it shaped the landscape that we see and a lot of the landscape was sort of sodden it was very wet it's like tundra i guess it was and as soon as you got a slope that's on an unstable surface and it's wet you've got a lot of heavy weight on it it's going to slide and that's exactly what we have with fam tour we've even got back tour as well there that's one of these sort of like glacial uh slide well post-glacial slide so you've got unstable sediment it's laden with water everything's wet it just slides down um, so we've got lots of these sort of like sliding features around and just sort of like anything that's on a slope it's that's a bit too steep for it to be happy it will slowly start to make its way until it becomes in equilibrium with itself really um, so you get lots of these like creep processes happening in post-glacial times um, and yeah, there's, there's lots of those around where we see now. So um, yeah, there's, there's, say there's two sides. The, there's the geology and there's the geography aspect, but the, what we see today and how the glaciers and, um, was formed is dictated by the underlying geology in a lot of aspects. And what caused the erosion? From the glacier. So the actual ice caps or the ice sheets themselves didn't make it to here. So you've got your, your, certain, your ice centres, uh, our nearest ice centre would be in the Lake District. But you'd have, you still have snow cover and ice cover. So I often try and think of it as like analogies of sort of maybe like tundra. And you've always got to have some kind of river action as well. So you've always got sort of like rivers running down here. Um, and all the gullies as well, they're always going to be forming gullies. If you, as soon as you've got a slope, it's going to start eroding into that slope. So it, it's difficult because you can't, you can't, it's very difficult to reconstruct a landscape, what it used to be like, because we've got nothing there to, to show it. Um, if you've got sort of like a, a big river, then yes, okay, you've got a big sort of V-shaped valley, uh, or if you've got like a big U-shaped valley where there's been a, a glacier that's just like come through and like just eroded everything away. But yeah, with, with sort of round here, it's, it's not as obvious. Um, but as you say, it's just sort of these post-glacial processes that's as, as well as like the rivers um, that sort of help see the landscape that we see today. Do you think that's why geology can be quite challenging to understand unless you really do go and study it because of the visual aspect? Ah, oh, totally. Yeah, exactly. And also, it's not an exact science. It's a, it's a story. You don't get proven right until you... Well, certainly with oil and gas, you don't get proven and right until they, they drill the well and, and, and tell them there's gas there, oil there. Um, and it's always a story because you're only dictated by the evidence that you have. Like with a lot of science you can change that theory until you get more and more evidence as it were and because it is very visual I think it, you've got to have a, a keen eye for like understanding how how maps work essentially um, I think if you if you understand how maps and the environment is related to on those maps it does make it a bit easier yeah given a novice a geology map they'd be like okay well I know that bit's limestone and that bit's I know igneous rock or that's a bit sandstone but so what what does it mean you, you and I think when we thought when we first sort of like start learning geology certainly as undergrad we have a map but then we also have a cross section so then you can see you basically cut a cross section through that landscape so you can then dig down what's actually going on what's the relationship happening between the different rocks and it's yeah it's really visual and it's and I guess it's quite difficult for people to grasp for novices to understand it and yeah to understand and a lot of like these research papers that you have there's not many that are available um that's that's sort of plainly written really um it's quite sort of yeah hard to understand which is why I try and I say try and create a story and use analogies and things like that when I'm 
take, taking people out. So looking at Ringing Roger, yes. for example, and the rock, the rock formations there, and then maybe also thinking about the wool packs, which yeah. is really quite impressive yes. to walk through. In really simple terms, really simple language, how do you explain to people how that has formed and what they're what they're seeing because it's quite interesting to look at isn't and it's it? quite different as well so from here it's very much sort of like a, a I say a, a normal sort of gritstone sandstone outcrop where you've got the you've got it, it looks wrinkly from here it's really quite distinctive actually you've got different so the different lines that you see are the different cross beds so they're like the tops of your delta coming down um, and your different layers and your different beds and you might even see sort of like some um, sort of either like coarsening upward sequences or fining upward sequences um, that you see so yeah so this is very much a what I say standard what like a classic uh, what you'd expect to see it as an outcrop but yeah certainly as you go further east past pim chairs and the wool packs you get these crazy sort of like I always think like alien type landscape isn't it it's awesome it's really really fun um and i always think it doesn't look as though it's part of the uk it's like it's like you see these features in like bryce canyon in the us of these like gorgeous like sandstone sculptured areas and then yeah you come you come up onto kinder and you're like wow these these are pretty cool i didn't expect to see these here and that is purely it's, that is sort of post probably like yeah post glacial and it's all sculptured by the wind and it's like a wind erosion and i guess that's probably due because it is further to the east uh, and our weather systems are coming from that way so it's very much more exposed here where we are in ring and roger um we're facing more sort of southwards aren't we where we are but yeah certainly around their way it's sort of um it's to the east you've got exposure for the weather systems coming in you've got lots of that wind that's just sort of like carving these amazing features and sculptures up um yeah so it is different i think it's, that's one of the one of the features i think of to kinder it's always quite good to, to bring people up here and take them there and what can people see if they look more closely so if like we were as we approached where yeah. we're sat now yeah. you were looking really closely at the rocks that we're now sitting on <laughs> so what how would you explain what what people can see if they get really close and they're touching it and okay so I got I got quite excited when I saw these rocks because and I always like to go and, and touch them I always like to feel them because that's the, you sort of it just brings your eye in doesn't it so they're quite knobbly um and they look there's some bits that look like rice krispies um big rice krispies actually and they're sort of the big quartz grains and they're quite um, some of them are quite angular but some of them are quite rounded and it's quite well it's gritstone so it's like sandpaper pretty much um, so it's very grippy and you've got these wrinkles in it I love the wrinkles which are the features um, which is sort of like your bed and planes in it but the, the roundness of the quartz grains gives you a, a, a sort of indication of how um, how worked the sediment was so when, when it was in its river if it's um, when something's first eroded it's really angular but the more it gets transported in that river the more it gets rounded and rounded and rounded so it gives an indication of how much this sediment was worked before it was turned to rock basically and before it was deposited um, so yeah the sort of again it just gives you those little stories of actually it's it's not just a rock you just how it, it tells each bit tells a story and the the rocks or the boulders i don't know how you would describe yeah these are all boulders yeah yeah sat on here. so have they have they moved have they fallen down from somewhere yeah so all the ones that we're sat on now um probably would have fallen down from the crack that we see on ring and roger yeah or pretty much yeah it's quite they would have been sort of eroded by the wind and the rain um, since they've been fallen and obviously a lot of them have got lichen on them now so they haven't been fallen recently and that's quite a good way to see if uh, an area is still active so if there's no lichen or anything growing on the rocks uh, then you know that area is still actively falling <laughs> so don't, don't go near it essentially <laughs> and do you expect this landscape to change how it looks in let's say what kind of expanse of time would we expect oh, wow so 
again, this is a great thing about geology because it's got so many different scales. So obviously we can look at human human influence. So in terms of the landscape, on top of kinder, um, they're, they're currently re-wetting it, aren't they, on top of kinder. Um, they're removing the, any trees so we get more of the moorland um, on there. And we've got the trees here. So all of that vegetation, all plays, sort of plays a part in what we see in the landscape that forms and the, the erosion. So we have, if we have less erosion, then it's probably going to stay more stable. If we have, uh, if we have more erosion, if there's more, I know maybe extreme weather events and things like that, there's going to be more erosion. There's going to be more gullies formed. Um, there's going to be more extreme landscapes. Um, if we have more moorland fires as well that's going to influence what we see sort of but in the in the very short term god put put in a time travel machine to go forward <laughs> i think because like so the uk has been is on a, a stable sort of landscape we've got no big plate we're not we're not going to solve we've got no big volcanoes and stuff near us we're all pretty stable we're not moving very far but our plates are always moving but we're just the the British landscape's always eroded at the minute, so we're eroding from the mountains and deposited in the rivers and into the sea eventually. So, in the next I don't know five ten million years, this will all be eroded away and then deposited into the sea. But then something else might be created. We might have more mountains elsewhere, um, and that's like yeah, that's on on geology time as it were. Um, things are always moving, things are always being eroded, things are always being deposited. It's very rarely where you get a completely um, stable landscape, as it were, where nothing's changing. Um, that makes it more interesting, I think, doesn't it? <laughs> and can you explain a little bit more about what's meant by delta? Yes, sorry. So um, if you think of uh, the Amazon Delta, the Brahmaputra and the, the Ganges, these are, are present-day deltas. So it's basically when you get a big river, and it has to be a big river, carrying lots of sediment, probably from mountains, hundreds of thousands of kilometres behind it. And um, so when a river is carrying all its sediment and then it comes to the sea and it sort of it basically sheds its load it comes to that sort of life where it can't carry its sediment load anymore so it deposits it and then you might get some more uh, as the river sort of builds up this sediment deposit it sort of builds out further and further into the sea and you get these four sets they're called so it's fairly if you think of the landscape as a profile of the landscape where the estuary is where the river is you've got your estuary and then it so slowly starts to slope off into the deep, into the into the into the sea. Uh, you've got that slope again, so your river's constantly depositing sand on this flat bit, as it were, but it's on the edge of a slope. So eventually, it'll sort of still start to have these. Um, it'll it'll fail the slope. You'll have these like little falls of sediment tumbling down the slope, and that's your delta. You've got like your delta top, which is. Um, and I think it's sort of, if you think of like modern day analogies, so sort of like Amazon, you've got like this big, uh, and your Nile Delta as well, big, big like man landscape of maybe marshes, wet um, sandbars and stuff as the, as the river's coming down and depositing its, its sediment. And then like a little bit further out where it's a little bit deeper. And then you've got your slope where you've got all this sediment that's like tumbling down. It's reaching its sort of like the point of which it can't keep hold of itself as it were and it just keeps on t tumbling down and that's like your your edge of your delta um and then you as you go down into the slope and into the deeper water that's when it sort of like gets um slightly finer grain sediment in there so it's sort of you get your delta build up and what's really important like what's sort of uh interesting about this environment it's very um influenced by sea level so if you have a drop in sea level then your delta becomes exposed. And if you have a, uh, if the sea level rises and then all of a sudden your delta's underwater. So you can lot, you can see those changes very much so uh, in, your, in the stratigraphy in the rock record. And it's really interesting to sort of look at climate change, I guess, through there, how the, how the climate's changing. And it could also be that the land is rising and falling as well as the sea, which is something even more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> so. And when we're walking on the path here, 
is that all sediment that we see as well but you know beneath our boots yeah so it's always great so the actual, when you're looking so the footpaths that, that, that you sort of like you walk on um are usually ground up bits of eroded bits of rock that you see so um if it's a sandy footpath then you think oh well actually it must be the sandstone it's the local rock it sort of uh, it gives a, a bit of an indication and some of the this the puts up like slabs and stuff here don't they for the, for the erosion purposes and they're all local slabby sandstones that they, they bring in so yeah it's always a bit of an indication of what the actual rock around is going to be like even if you look at houses so this is a great way to get geology into all conversations if you look at the houses what the, ha the stone is made of of your local villages it's usually of the local of the local rock sort of like the the houses in sort of Pembrokeshire or Wales area and um, the sort of but it'll be of the the slate um, you could go where it's like the red sandstone uh, in some areas of Northumberland uh, which is really good to see so yeah it's always a bit of an indication of what the rock's going to be like. Yeah I think some of the um, rock here was quarried for to build the church in Edale. Okay. Yeah upon Nether Tor I believe. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm. <laughs> Very interesting. <laughs> Trying to get my head around it. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I've actually got some maps and pictures, actually. I don't know if that would going to be help to, and I know it's ideal for a podcast, but <laughs> it's what I show people. So this is my uh, chart, my chronostratigraphy chart, and it's basically, it's really colourful, and it goes all the way from the Precambrian, um, which is the, the, start, <laughs> the start of time, uh, the, start, the start of earth's time all the way to present day and basically it's sort of it just gets into perspective like whereabouts we are so the carboniferous is sort of as i say was 300 and say 50 million years ago we're present day we've got all this time span we've got dinosaurs in between of this but the earth sort of started four billion years ago so again it's sort of it's just getting to your head and i think it's amazing like to come away just in awe wondering about just how amazing it is I think actually how stuff was formed and do you feel, still feel a sense for that even though you've studied it and worked oh yeah even now I think it's amazing I was like yeah even talking about it, it gets me excited I was like god it is it's it is it's, a, it's like would it be amazing just to have like a time machine just to take us back just to see what the landscape is because we can only make an interpretation from the from the data that we have um that might be wrong, but we, we've made an interpretation. It's like the um, the first scientists that came across the first, like what they thought were like dinosaur bones, and they started putting these animals together uh, that were completely wrong, but that's what they had at the time. Um, and geology, and I guess science in general, is all about that. You're just making that interpretation with the data that you have. Um, so to have a time machine and go back to think, actually, what was this area like? Was it? Um, when we were out to say that actually was warm tropical seas, what what creatures were swimming around in the ocean? I think, uh, yeah, I think it's amazing. I think it's because it's a so different, it's a so different world that the oxygen levels were different, the climates were different, everything was so different. It's, it is a, like it is another world um, to go into. And do we see fossils here? We don't see many fossils in the sandstones and the gritstones purely because if you think, like, in, um, imagine like a delta, it just gets, it's not very nice for creatures and certainly like corals and things to live in. They don't, they don't like sort of delta environments. Uh, it's too muddy and sandy and it's like, there's lots of stuff going on. Um, you may find like bits of wood um, that have been brought in uh, and like vegetation from like the, the swamps and things near, um, nearby. But certainly in the um, the carbonates and limestones that we see before it, yeah, that's ideal. That was like a tropical reef environment. Um, and you've got your corals, they're called crinoids. Um, you, you see loads of them around Castleton. And you see them in the dry stone walls as well, everywhere. And these are, crinoids are sea lilies, and you get them nowadays as well. So you can Google them and actually see what they look like. And they're pretty much exactly the same as what they were 300 million years ago. And they've got these stems and I guess like a bulb, like a flower bulb on top. And they sort of like swayed around getting their feeding um, in these warm tropical seas. And it's very much the stems that we see nowadays um, and a bit like a polo mint, so they're hollow in between. Um, there's like a spine and a lot of them are broken, but you do get to see sort of like stems on their own. And actually I think in 
Odin's mine, you can actually see the full crinoid. Um, I was taking a group out, one of the ladies found it. And it's great because you don't have to see like that actual full like stem and the crinoid. So I always have to remember to see to find that in in Odin's mine. Wow. Um, but yes, yeah, so there's like just like obviously a few shells and, and other different things that you see. So yeah. So I've often heard of this area referred to as the Dark Peak, and then we're looking out towards the White Peak. Yeah. So how and why does it? get that name so again that's all about the rocks again so the dark peak takes its name from the sandstone which is it's quite i guess a quite dark in nature it's a dark brown fawny color if you compare it to the white peak which is predominantly limestone and carbonates and we get different landscapes associated with that so the dark peak you see the edges you've got your flat moorlands there's a lot of moorland landscape with the dark peak and uh, that's yeah purely down to the sandstone when you look into the White Peak, um, it's your dales and it's sort of uh, your your gullies and your dales and your a lot of like farmland. Um, so and again, that landscape is dictated by the geology underneath. It's not like by chance that all of a sudden, like oh, we get more farmland in the Peak District because more people want to um, farm in the white in, in the White Peak. It's like no, because it's more suitable and it is sort of you've got that more gradual gradients and in, in the in the dales that are forming that that causes that. And obviously, different fauna and flora, flora um, prefer the different rock type as well associated with them. Um, and I think we sort of we're pretty much on the boundary here, and it's not like guess the next valley long in Castleton is is sort of a bit of the boundary between the light and the the uh, the white and the dark peak. And yeah, it's great. It's not like an obvious it's a line on the ground or anything like that. But you can look one direction, look to the north, and see the moorland and the the flat tops um, of Kinder. You look to the south and you see all the nice sort of field boundaries with all your your um, your dry stone walls and, and um, yeah, completely different landscape. And let's say it's all, all all part of the geology. And how does the Mamtor Ridge fit or not yeah, fit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's sort of like a, a different thing as well. So that's after all the rocks were deposited. Well, all the, all the sediments were deposited, and you had the rocks turn. Well, they had the sediment turned to rock, as it were. You then had. Um, probably more sediment on top of that was created but then as I said mentioned you had this like uplift um of the peak district formed by way off tectonic processes that were, were creating this compression so you had this bit of doming and the great ridge as it's called which is all the way from Mamtor to Wynn Hill isn't it um basically that's the bit that got compressed and sort of squished in the middle that's related to this doming so again it's really it's hard to visualise, and even I'm having struggling to visualise because, again, because there's no there's no diagrams anywhere of it. It's just what you read in pa- in scientific papers that this is what happens. But um, yeah, you've got the so you can imagine like compression. If you if you squash two things together, you're going to get a dome in and also maybe like a bit of a of a ridge in the middle, and that's where we get the Great Ridge. How do you bring your interest in earth science into your work as a Hillamorland leader? I can talk about in anything. <laughs> it's so easy. Um, it's as we say, we, we, you can talk about it from the from the dry stone walls. You might be able to find some fossils in dry stone walls. What the buildings are made of? Here's some rocks. Yeah, and even sort of like the millstones in the area as well. So industry, how's industry related to uh, the rocks that we see? So um, I can show people um, about the different millstones. Why is millstone a great, what what the properties of millstone that make it a great, um, why it is so good? Even Hope Cement Factory. Why have they got the cement factory here? Because of the, the limestone. That's it. it's sort of, it, it, you, you can build it into everything. Yeah, it may not be the obvious, well, let, let's just go for a walk and I'll show you some rocks. But it's like, no, you've got to sort of, let's go and find some fossils, let's go and find some minerals. The Blue Jean as well, you can find all the minerals there as well. So there's lots of different ways I can start talking about it to people. I think it's genius <laughs> to combine the two. How do people usually respond when you lead walks here and tell, tell them about your your knowledge? They usually, they usually find the landscape really sort of awe-inspiring especially like the kids that think it's really good that it's like think it's just a big adventure um especially that and sort of like seeing the animals especially if the baby lambs are out as well it just like adds to it as well 
Yeah, I think people, I, I guess it's that time frame again, like thinking about 350, right, 350, 340 million years ago, people are like, whoa, and it's sort of, it's sort of, it's surprising uh, to people, I think. Um, yeah, because I think it's often something, I mean, when I first came here, I was astounded by yeah. the beauty of the place yeah. and certainly curious, but to listen to you now and other bits that I've learned through my Hillamorland um, leader training and things like that, I really am amazed, you know, and I, and I want to know more. I want to understand it yeah. more yeah, yeah. and um, not just read about it, like hear about it from people who are experts and in I think, the field. Yeah, it, it's nice, especially, again, it's all about that story when people first hear about the story and they can, of the mountains in the north colliding and creating these massive big mountain re, um, mountainous areas and then we're eroding all the big rivers coming down and this is what we see here because you think, well, Scotland's miles away. But I'm thinking, th- th- this came from Scotland, these rivers, and Scandinavia even. I think, yeah, I think it just sort of puts... It's sort of, people don't realise it. it's not something you hear about every day. You'd like, you, know, you, you know what rocks are, you know what sandstone is maybe, but you're like, you don't really know about how this got here. So because you've had a strong education in this information, how do you communicate it to people in an engaging way? And obviously I can hear <laughs> in now how you do that, but how do you do that? So when you're working with groups and with children, how do you put across that information diagrams and plenty of sharpies (laughs) (laughs) and maps obviously so um when i'm taking people out who've got who know about maps so if i'm doing a uh, a cpd course with the mountain training or something like that people understand maps so i can i basically get an os map and say well on on an os map you've got uh your rivers marked on you've got your mountains marked on um you've got your estuaries marked on and stuff so they can imagine that as a as a landscape what it was back 350 million years ago. So I try and sort of make the the maps that they see now um, like a geology map, as it were. So I, I sort of, I, I do that sort of relationship. With kids, it's, a, it's all about sort of drawing diagrams, getting Sharpies out. Um, I've got a few sort of like images I usually take out. Um, 3D block diagram that I've got sort of um, the guys at work to put together for me uh, that basically shows what a delta is because again it's really difficult to describe what a delta is. If I get a 3D, <laughs> I'm glad you did. <laughs> get, get a 3D diagram said here this is a delta this is what this is where the sea is this is where like the bottom of the sea is this is where the mountains are this is where all the, the rivers transport and all its sediment to. Uh, if I can show that people are like oh okay I'm a little bit more understanding and again explain what a crinoid what a sea lily is I'll usually just sort of like get my sharpie out draw on the back of my, um, of my folder as like look this is what they look like let's go out and try and find some something that looks like this um, so yeah I think that's that's the best way I'm, I'm saying I'm very visual um, yeah trying to you, you can try and like explain things to some people but it, sometimes it just doesn't go in but if you can actually show them a map or if you can show them a diagram or just start writing something down then that usually helps a lot I think yeah I think it's often the terminology isn't it that yeah makes you makes people including myself kind of switch off oh yeah we're, we're geologists are known for making up words like we're, <laughs> like even if it's like, we just make like if we, if we find something new it's like oh let's just, just make a new word out of this um and, and yeah I, we all have our own geology dictionaries and like, like i remember when i was doing it all the time they go oh what does that mean again what does that mean again it's it is so sciencey and you get and i i think i'm a bit of a overview sort of jack of all trades type of thing i know a little about lots of things um some geologists are so focused on particular areas so you get some geologists that are that just know about this this area potentially that, that are, they'll know all about the kinder scouting as it were um and like they'll be they'll probably be explaining stuff to me i was like oh, i don't necessarily know some of those words i can probably guess because i've just like merged two science words together and <laughs> they're calling it something else but yeah it's, it's very techy so for an outsider uh, 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 say it's quite it's difficult to sort of make that sort of link to um from the science world to sort of like the everyday world i think and to get people engaged in it mm-hmm. and actually because they're trying to do uh the i think it's a Br- british geological survey they do a, a geoscience week every year i think they skipped it in the, during the pandemics but um and that's a way of trying to get the general public interested in geology uh, and I have done a few uh, walks through them actually, and 
yeah, and I, I think it's good because people do have a have an interest, but it's quite hard to get that information across because say it's because it is so sciencey and so techy. It doesn't have to be. Yeah, I suppose there's maybe an assumption that if you have an interest in it, then you are a sciencey person, or uh, yeah. and it's not necessarily true because you might just look at it and appreciate it exactly and wonder how and why yeah. it looks like that. Exactly, and there's like this, you could easily create a great story about how this all this was created uh, with a few sort of like nice cool diagrams and sort of like a little bit of text or something like that. It doesn't take much, I don't think, just to create a nice story. Mm-hmm. What questions do people often ask you when you're leading a walk or a day out with them? What are they most curious about when they're walking on kinder? Yeah. No, because I was so um, struck with them. With so, <laughs> I've just talked all the time about them. They they they, they don't know any questions. Um, <laughs> I think they do. It's not so much how stuff formed. They might ask maybe like maybe like what the vegetation is, or maybe what some of the plants are, or the birds and things. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, I think certainly like the the. They, they don't ask questions on the landforms, which is interesting, actually. So maybe I have explained it, or maybe they're just sort of, OK, I've had enough of this woman <laughs> talking to me all the time. Um, I, did, uh, when, um, um, I did have a really good question um, a few years back from... I say kids always ask the great questions, because they, they're not afraid, and they just ask, ask stuff all the time. And um, I was taking a group up onto Windy Knoll, and there's a bit of... Um, called biodegraded it's basically oil biodegraded oil on top of windy knoll and um, one of the kids asked me what's the difference between vegetable oil and oil that you put in your car I was like that's a great question and I was like I'm not I'm not a geochemist so I, I can't really explain it very well other than one comes out the ground and one's from a plant but um yeah so, so some of the questions I can't answer and I'm very sort of saying well I, I, I really don't know I'll try my best but um and sometimes I do get back to people there was a group I was taking out for uh, mountain training actually and they were asking a bit more about the about the crinoids and the, the sea lilies and more about like the animals that used to sort of uh, live in the area and again that, that's a bit more biology and I was like I'm not a biologist but I'm thinking actually I can find more information out for you um, so um, yeah so some of the questions I don't know because they're too specific and I'll, I'll get back to people. And what about when you took the family out on Kinder Scout what were they most curious or most amazed by when they were here? I think we are I think there's lots of things. So that they were from they were from London and they had they just wanted a big day out. Um, they were practicing to do the the UK three peaks. So I was like, great. This is like Kinder's like the perfect. If you want a big day out, Kinder's like the <laughs> best place. You can just go up and down loads of places, uh, loads of loads of different options. Uh, and it was a really sunny day, and um, we went up. I think we got, went up Crowden, and there's lots of like little pools, isn't there? Up Crowden, up on the um, up one of the brooks and so yeah they just loved it that it was so quiet because again you don't have to go very far out of the tourist trails out of up, up jacob's ladder to get somewhere quiet um so they were amazed to see how it was able to win people up this um up this clough and yeah so they, they were sort of like had a, had a bit of dip in the pools we got to the top and um i was going to I navigated over to the um to the waterfall Normally, when I come up to Kinder, I was I was prepared to do proper navigation with map and compass. But it was a, the rare occasion where I could actually see on top. It was amazing, and it was, it was obviously still boggy. But they had a great time. They were jumping over the bogs. It was a proper family day out, and they loved it. Um, they loved the the environment, the landscape. Yeah, just how it sort of all fitted together. And obviously, it was there was some busy parts and some uh, with lots of people. And then we tried to get away when it was. Um, just so it was like just a bit quieter so there's always places you could go where it's a little bit quieter so yeah so they were just I don't think they, they realized what type of place it was mm. really um which is nice so yeah so that's about the geology I guess for them uh, but just more about kinder itself it sounds like a great brilliant day out it was yeah and I think the, the aim was to tie them out and they had three kids three energetic kids and I tied everybody out so that was that was the aim it, kinder definitely tires me out you know <laughs> in a good way oh yeah exactly but no yeah they all stopped for ice creams at the end it was yeah it was the end of a, end of a good day for them oh brilliant why is this a location that you think is particularly special where we are now I think 
you get to you sort of you're close to kinder right? ringing roger's great he's got some like nice little scrambles and stuff up ringing roger but again it's the scale of stuff as well so you also get to see all the way across the valley and also into the next valley as well so you get to perspective of of where you are in the peaks as that you don't you don't have to go very far how far did we walk this morning? 10, 15 minutes, wasn't it? Not very far to, to come in somewhere where it is so wild. You can't hear a road, which I think is amazing. Like it's, yeah, so precious to be in a place where you can't hear a road. Um, and yeah, it's just, it, it's, it's quiet enough, but then you don't have to go very far just to get back on to the track, mm. to go back into the village or to go up onto the top. Um, yeah, it's a bit of a fun place, this, because they say there's a little scramble. You're not too far from like a little cr- climbing crag as well. Um, yeah, just got a bit of everything. There's so many options from here, aren't there? Because yeah, you can sort of go, you can skirt around the edge, or you can cross over to the trig point and get over to the northern edge. Exactly. Yeah. Or, yeah, you can go any direction you want to actually from here, isn't it? You can go. Yeah, you can practice navigation over the top. Uh, you can go sort of like east to um, sort of to see all like round the edges or you can go west to see um yeah to see all the cool sort of like formations and stuff there so yeah again so many different options on kinder it's great and finally what makes you wild about kinder scout i think it's the wildest place that's accessible for me so wild doesn't have to be extreme I think wild, wild to me is um, can be away from people, um, away from traffic, away from the bustles of life, um, away from roads. And I think here, because you're in like the next valley along, you've got that little that little road um, that gets to it. It just feels a little bit more more wild to get here. So I think, and the, and the weather as well. It can always be, <laughs> well, you know, it can be so. It can be any weather up here. It can change very rapidly. Um, it's one of those places where you can have a, a wild day out, as it were. You can have a big adventure. You can go up and down all the cloughs. And, yeah, that's it. it always excites me coming here. I think that's great. Have you run here before? I don't think I have actually. I've always, I've always walked. It's a lot of fun to run. I bet it is. We should go running together. I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you go running with someone else, but yeah, we should. It's really fun. Yeah. I think it's it's quite unique. And I guess once you're on the top, this is always like once you're on the top, it's. I say it's easy. It's plain set because it's flatter, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? That's my type of running. Once I'm at the top, then let's yeah, you could just uh, go f- go for. You could go all the way around, can't you? This is the Edale skyline. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and I really actually love the changeable weather. I thought that I would struggle with it when I first moved here, uh-huh. but actually, I really love it. And coming up here on a really foggy, still day is really amazing. And I've walked so we can see the path now yeah. that sort of leads to Olibrook walking up here when it's completely surrounded in fog and you feel like you're the only person in the world yeah and i can hear the grouse you know but you can't see them and it's honestly it's just an absolutely magical sensation and it's so eerie as well and i guess that's what makes it wild because i think that will put a lot of people off when they when they see it all clouded it so all fogged over they're like oh let's not just go there today but if you once you feel confident enough in your navigation you, you sort of you know pretty much where you want to go then you've got the whole place to yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. Surreal, yeah. And I think if you if you do know your way around Kinder quite well, it's actually a really good challenge because you experience it in a different way. I noticed that when it's foggy, the rocks or the boulders look even bigger. Yeah, it's it's really strange how it affects the scale of things. Yeah, and as you mentioned with the sound as well, it's sort of it, you hear sounds differently as well. And I say every time is different when I come up here as well. I say we, I did I did some of my navigation training up here because it, it's great for navigation because there's there's not there's not many pointy things to to, to navigate to. <laughs> this is why they often say like um, your navigation for your your mountain leader is sometimes easier than your hill and moorland leader because. Um, navigating across moorland is pretty hard because you've got nothing to navigate to it's all flat um so up here it's of it's great practice and um yeah even in the i think it was in the training we came here and again you've always got the pub to go back to at the end of the day which is always good and we actually did the assessment up here and it was we came from the we started in hayfields on the day and it was my leg to kill up. i can't remember the name of the clough it was on the north side it wasn't nays 
can't remember the name of it but yeah it sort of brought us up to up the clough and um by this time it was like getting dark so we had to like navigate across somewhere and then it was it was a headwind and it was raining and it was dark and it's just like i was like i've actually done this this actual point navigation before actually around here but i'm thinking it's completely different it's like it's always different every time you come and yeah there's there's it's quite a big area really and even if you spend 15 20 years up here you'll probably there's always bits that are changing and you'll always need to explore new areas of it well, I think it's time for me to look at your diagrams now. I think all so. Of your <laughs> put all of your explanations into pictures. I so. <laughs> so I think, so the first one here, this is... This